you tonight. Happy Mother's Day to everybody. Pastor says I'm famous. Other people say I'm infamous. And uh, I probably think infamous is more fitting. Let's turn in our Bibles to Psalm 86. As you're turning to Psalm 86, I'll give you just a couple of things to update you. Uh, Amanda is graduating tomorrow night from New England Baptist College. That is the only reason they're asking me to, uh, to be the speaker, I'm sure. It's not about what you know, but who you know, right? And so... Um, I was flying in, they figured they'd get a guy that was already coming in, probably somebody canceled and, and uh, they found out I could be there. Uh, so Amanda is graduating tomorrow and then as uh, she does, we fly back with, our, with my wife's parents on Wednesday uh, to Phoenix. We get in the car on Friday and drive to Yosemite and uh, Amanda will be married uh, again for a second time. You say, uh-oh, we couldn't get a marriage license in California for them. So their marriage, they got legally married in Tennessee just a couple weeks ago. Amanda's still been living here. Her, I guess her husband has been living in Tennessee, so they've already separated. It's, it's not a good start. And um, uh, we're going to see if we can work things out in Yosemite and get them together. Uh, Caleb is in his, uh, he'll be starting his third week of Marine Boot Camp uh, this week, and so uh, uh, pray for him if you would please. Janique and Ellie are still Janique and Ellie at home, and uh, they're kind of holding down the fort there. God's been good to us at, at Mountainside Baptist Church. I do have a lot of travel. I was telling Pastor, I, I think between now and the very beginning of August, I'm scheduled to be coast to coast eight different times, and so if you would pray for us uh, in those travels, I'd appreciate that, and a lot of those times are just really short times where I can still get back and be at Mountainside Baptist Church, and so we'd appreciate that. You're going to have the Hortons here, and they are a great couple. If you haven't met the Hortons, you want to be here for them. The Hortons were what we would call seasonal members of Mountainside Baptist Church for a number of years. They spent their, their winters for a number of years in Phoenix in Surprise and uh, were part of Mountainside Baptist Church. And he and I would fight a lot because, you know, I was in the, where's my friends? I was in the good part of Canada. He was in the bad part of Canada. And so we would fight a lot about what was the good part and the bad part of Canada, but the Hortons are a tremendous couple, and if you haven't heard Mrs. Horton's testimony, you need to hear it, and it's, it's just incredible. I remember sitting with the Hortons one night, Mrs. Horton said to me something about back when my parents were with uh, uh, Inland China Missions, and it kind of went forward, and I said, whoa, whoa, back up, back up. And she, I said, did you say your parents were with Inland China Missions? She said, Yeah. And then she started talking about Uncle Eric, Eric Liddell. She called him Uncle Eric. <laughs> he was her school teacher. And of course, Eric Liddell, great missionary and uh, athlete who gave really up his, his uh, career in, in athletics to be a missionary for the Lord. And so great couple. And I'm excited that they're going to be here. Please extend, Pastor, our, our greetings to the Hortons. We love the Hortons. We still try to keep in contact with them as much as we can. Psalm 86, thank you so much, Pastor, for allowing me to uh, preach tonight. It's always good to get back uh, to harvest. We still think of harvest as our home. Psalm 86 in our Bibles. I want to focus in on just one verse and really just the first phrase of one verse uh, tonight. Psalm 86 and verse number 11. Um, I would love to be able to preach all of Psalm 86 and verse 11, but 
uh, somebody would fall out of the window and they would die and I'm not Paul and I couldn't revive you afterwards. And if you're not familiar with what I'm saying, read the book of Acts sometime. Uh, Teach me thy way, David says, O Lord. That's the phrase I want to focus in on tonight. I see there a submitted will. A submitted will. Teach me thy way, O Lord. I will walk in thy truth. I see there a sincere will. I will walk in thy truth. Once you teach me what you do with me, I'll do what you ask me to do. Unite my heart to fear thy name. I see there a settled will. But tonight I really want to just focus in on that first phrase, Teach me thy will, O Lord. And I want to look at this idea of a submitted will. Uh, What does it mean to truly offer ourselves a living sacrifice to God, which is our reasonable service? And, And I think this Old Testament passage is a parallel to what it means to be that New Testament living sacrifice. And so let's look at this, uh, just this first phrase of the verse tonight. But before we do, let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you uh, for the day and for your goodness and love to us and and the privilege to meet together. I pray that you will bless our time in the word. I pray if somebody here doesn't know you as Savior, isn't 100% certain if they were to die today that they would be instantaneously and forever in the presence of Jesus that they would receive him as Savior tonight. I pray as Christians that we would decide right now, Lord, we will be yielded to the leading of the Holy Spirit of God as the Word of God is preached, that Christians would even at this moment as I pray seek to be filled with the Holy Spirit of God that we might receive your Word tonight as it is indeed the Word of God with power, that you would bring us to points of decision that are only reasonable. It's only reasonable that we would present our bodies a living sacrifice. And so, bless in this time, be glorified through it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, when when God called my family and I to go to Quebec and and plant the church there, I knew something that was going to be required of me was to learn the French language. And so, I I knew there would be a lot of training involved, and we did a lot of, of seeking counsel and looking to who was the best language teacher at the time in that area and who could help us the most. And time and time and time again, the same name came back to me over and over again. If you want to learn the French language, if you want the best teacher that's available, you need to speak to Marguerite Pauly. Marguerite and and Gerald Pauly are long-term missionaries. They had served in French-speaking Africa. They learned the language of French in France before, before going to Africa. She was so proficient in her language abilities that she skipped language school, went to the University of France and got teaching certificates while she was there trying to learn the language before she went to Africa. And then they served for a number of years and still serve in Quebec. And I was told time and again that she was by far the most exceptional language teacher in the area. And if I was going to learn French, I had to go to her. But I was also told this, that Marguerite Pauly was by far the toughest teacher you would ever come across. In fact, many described her as a reincarnated United States Marine Corps drill sergeant. I can testify that if I believed in reincarnation, I would agree to that statement. Her students were, I was told, both men and women through the years had been reduced to tears. But I wanted to be taught by the best. 
And, and I wasn't so concerned about how tough Mrs. Polly was because after all, I was working at that time in a maximum security prison and I was locking up murderers. I mean, how tough could she be? So before we ever moved to Quebec and before we ever got things really settled, we were in Quebec for a missions conference and I met the Paulies there and they invited us to their home and they were very kind and they were very gracious and we spoke about following language study with them and we made all the arrangements and Mrs. Polly really at that time seemed to me exceptionally sweet. She seemed to be a very kind person, very gracious but I thought, you know, this is the perfect time to just set the record straight. And so I, 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 in her home, in her kitchen, where she is the queen of the castle, I got with Mrs. Polly and I set the record straight. I said, Mrs. Polly, I want you to know that I've heard you're the best language teacher is by far. I want you to know that I'm excited that you've agreed to be my teacher. But I also want you to know that I've heard that you're kind of tough. I've heard you've made some people cry. And I said, Mrs. Pauly, I want you to know something. You're not going to make me cry. In fact, I want you to know something. If anybody's going to cry in class, well, it ain't going to be me. And if it's only you and me, you can figure out who it's going to be. Looking back, I think that was the day I began to dig my own grave. At least as far as Mrs. Pauly was concerned. As I look back and as I know her now, I kind of shudder when I remember her reply because she just kind of looked at me and gave me a real sweet smile and she just said, we'll see. <laughs> well, I figured Mrs. Polly had it all settled. I was going to go to her class, I was going to be in charge, but she was going to teach me French. We finished our deputation, we got to Quebec and... Over a year had passed since we had had that conversation together, and on the very first day of class, it seemed apparent to me that Mrs. Pauly had forgot the instructions I had given to her about who was going to be in charge. So I subtly tried to remind her, as subtle as I know how to be, and if you know me, that's not really too subtle, but I tried to be subtle. She didn't seem to be getting the hint, so I told her in more direct ways. You're going to teach me French, but I'm going to be in charge. Now, there were other missionaries in the class, and there were times when they could see the storm was brewing, when Mrs. Pauly thought she was going to be in charge, and I was sure I was going to be in charge, and they would literally hide themselves behind their books. Mrs. Pauly had this strange idea I'm the teacher, I'm in charge. She was not on board with this whole idea that I had. You teach me French, but I'm in charge. I wanted Mrs. Pauly to teach me, but on my terms. And she was insistent on doing things her way. Now, I'm not calling Mrs. Pauly a stubborn lady tonight. But I'm going to tell you that after all the metaphorical pushing and shoving was over, it seemed pretty clear to me that Mrs. Pauly was going to run Mrs. Pauly's class. And if I was going to be a student in her class, she was going to be in charge. 
I recognized that she was perhaps the best teacher I had ever sat under. She had a way to instill the knowledge and just and give you things so that you could just absorb it and learn. And so I wanted to be in her class. She never made me cry. I'm not sure that if I ever made her cry or not, my wife could tell you. But I reluctantly came to the place where I recognized if Mrs. Pauly's going to teach me French, she's going to be in charge. She's going to do it her way. For the record, we love the Paulys today and they love us. They would consider themselves extended grandparents, especially to Amanda and to Caleb. Amanda just saw the Paulys recently and had a good reunion with them. And though I know that you, if you that know me, find it hard to believe that I have even the least bit of stubbornness in me, and that I would ever cause anybody any problems, especially one of my teachers, I do want you to consider that if you're going to actually say to somebody, teach me, you're going to need to learn to submit your will. You're going to need to learn to have a submissive spirit. And that's something that I see that David starts off with in Psalm 86 and verse number 11, this submitted will. He comes to the Lord and he says, teach me thy way, O Lord. You know, David remains submitted and sensitive to the leading of God through his entire life. It's not that he never sinned, it's never that he never had any problems, but by and large, David had a submissive spirit to the leading of God in his life. And when you and I come to a person, or you and I come to that place where we say to God, God, teach me, teach me. What we're really saying is, God, I'm gonna submit myself to your authority. I'm gonna submit myself to your guidance. I am putting myself under your direction, under your leadership. And God, I want you to be the teacher. And what we're saying is we have a certain amount of trust and confidence, can I say faith, in the teacher. And we've gotta to get to that place where that translates into a submissive spirit in our lives towards the teacher. You see, for the teacher-student relationship to work, the teacher has to be in charge, and the student has to be submissive. It just doesn't work any other way. Here's the problem. Most of us probably know that. Few of us will ever do that. Because to get to that point, to get to the place where you and I can honestly come to God and say, God, teach me. God, I am, I am submitting myself to you. You're the leader. You're, you're the, now, I know that we say that out loud all the time, but I'm talking about in our hearts now. Where we get to that point, we say, God, I'm not in control of any of this. When I say this, I mean my life. It's surrendered completely. We don't get there very often because we're not really designed that way. By nature, we're sinful and rebellious. And I want to consider with you three things tonight. What does it mean to have this kind of submitted will, and, and how do you get there? If we're ever going to get to that place where we say, God, teach me, and you really want God you, to, to teach you and to lead you and to guide you, 
then you're going to have to let God be in charge. But how do you get there? I think David tells us some things in what we see in this text. The first thing I see, number one, is if you're going to get to that place where you not just say to somebody, hey, what's your advice? Or you teach me and I'll be in charge, but rather you teach me, you're in charge now. Number one, it will require an honest assessment of ourselves. An honest assessment of ourselves. Remember who's coming to the Lord and saying, teach me. This is David. He's the apple of God's eye. He's the, he's the a man after God's own heart. He's the sweet psalmist of Israel. He's the slayer of giants and the leader of mighty men. David is God's choice to be king over Israel. David is that great warrior willing to risk everything for the honor and glory of God. This is David who wrote the vast majority of our Psalms. He is the greatest king that Israel has ever known. He is in the lineage of Jesus Christ and his throne will continue in the millennial kingdom. That David. And in the context... If you study out Psalm 86, what you will find is David has been ruling and reigning as king for about 30 years when he writes Psalm 86. David's been walking with God for a long time. He's well-versed in the Bible. He's had years of ministry experience now under his belt. If David was around today, every Bible college in the land would want to give him an honorary doctorate. He'd be invited to preach all the great conferences. He would be the highlighted speaker. He'd be in all the chronicles and the newspapers. The crowds would always gather to hear David speak. And yet when we look at David and we say, wow, David with such a zeal for God and, and from a young man going to kill Goliath all the way through his years, just serving the Lord. Not that he was never without sin, but just consistently serving the Lord for the most part of his life. We look and say, what a mighty man of God. But when David looked in the mirror and he reviewed his own life and heart and he made an honest assessment of himself, well, he says what he saw in verse number one of Psalm 86. Bow down thine ear, O Lord, hear me, for I am poor and needy. Wow. You and I look at David and say, what a great giant of the faith. What a great man of God. But David looked in the mirror and he said, God, you're going to have to bow down real low to get a hold of me. To even take a glimpse of me, I am poor and needy. David didn't see himself as being somebody who had arrived. He didn't look at himself and say, boy, I've got it all together. Uh, David uh, didn't think that he had everything all figured out. David didn't think, man, isn't God so lucky to have me in his service? David looked at himself and he made an honest assessment of himself and he said, God, I am poor and I am needy. And if you are even going to condescend to even turn your face in my direction, you're going to have to bow down real low because I I am just a low, low, low life. David didn't see himself as the great leader that we do. It's not that he didn't recognize he had leadership qualities and that he could be a leader, but he had an honest assessment of himself. There are a lot of Christians who get to their point, get to a point in their walk with the Lord. And they behave like, I've got nothing left to learn. 
It's almost as if they were present on the mount when Jesus preached his sermon on the mount. They would sit there twiddling their thumbs and say, I wonder when he's going to be done with this. He can't teach me anything. It's almost like we behave ourselves in such a way that, man, we've got it all figured out. I don't know if it's arrogance or it's an absence for any real desire for spiritual growth. Maybe it's a little bit of both. Everybody's met somebody who has nothing to learn. Everybody's met somebody who thinks they have arrived. And because beliefs always dictate behavior, it's not what they think. It's actually what they believe in their heart. When you meet a person who, who acts as if they know everything, when you're, when you're acting a thing out, you really believe that thing. I've met so many people who tell me, well, I've read the Bible cover to cover. And then almost in the same, same breath, they'll tell me, but Jesus isn't the only way, the truth, and the life. There's other ways to heaven. Really? They'll come out with some other completely unbiblical thought after they just said, well, I, I've read the entire Bible. You may have read the Bible, but you came to it with a, with a thought and a heart that said, there's nothing here for me to learn. I'm going to come on my own terms. I'll read your word, God, because that's what Christians do. But I'm going to be in charge. We've all heard of the story Ben-Hur, written by Lee Wallace. Wallace read the Bible on purpose to find contradictions in the Word of God. You know that before he wrote Ben-Hur, he was not a Christian. In fact, he was completely opposed to Christianity, to the Bible, and to God. His, his desire was to prove the Bible false. But he came reading the Scriptures. In his own words, he says this, I was not in the least influenced by religious sentiment. I had no convictions about God or Christ. But when he read the Bible to prove it wrong, he read with a teachable spirit. He read with a submissive spirit. As arrogant as his statement was, there was still something there that said, I'm going to at least honestly examine what is here. Before he was done reading, he received Jesus as his Savior, and we have the story been heard today. You know, we need more people like Lee Wallace. Our society is filled with people who know everything. Just ask them. They'll tell you. It's as if they're intent to put their ignorance on display and to parade it around like it's some great accomplishment. I told my wife and family the other day as we were driving, day by day, things get so much more outrageous every single day in the news, in the news cycle that it seems like yesterday was normal and today is so outrageous I can't even believe I'm living in these times. I don't know if you saw just this week, but some self-proclaimed expert is now telling parents that they have to get an infant's consent before they change an infant's diapers. Now, if that doesn't tell you that Romans 1 and verse 22 is true, professing themselves to be wise, they became fools, who could have dreamt of such a thing? 
David, though, looks in the mirror. He makes an honest assessment of himself and he says, Lord, I am poor and I am needy. He said, God, I, gotta, I need you to guide me and direct me and direct every one of my steps. David recognized in self and by self he couldn't do anything. There was only one thing he was certain he could do, fail. He, he, was, he, he saw no inward strength and stamina, no inward wisdom that said, I can do this on my own. So, Lord, teach me. I am poor and needy. Lord, teach me thy way. I think this is one of the reasons why the Lord used David all the days of his life. People look back and they say, you know, why did God continue to use David after the incident with Bathsheba? Well, number one, David repented. And if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But, but number two, David continued to see, I'm needy. I need the Lord. And when we've de determined in our lives we've arrived and we don't need guidance any longer, God's done using us because we're no longer usable. You know, you know the, the world's philosophy which has kind of been embraced in the church today is, if you can conceive it, you can achieve it. Many have embraced a subtle pride that says, I've arrived, I'm at a point where there's nothing left to learn. The liberal education system that is more concerned with self-esteem than actual education, the self-help gurus of this world have convinced a whole generation that they're smarter than any generation that's gone before them. A survey taken amongst college freshmen for the past 47 years tells us something. In 1965, 60% of freshmen said that their drive to succeed was higher than average. So in 1965, 60% said, I have a higher than average drive to succeed. In 2013, and in every year since, the number has climbed, that went up to 80%. In 1965, but they're living in their parents' basements, in 1965, less than 40% of freshmen claimed to possess a higher-than-average intellectual gift. In 2013, and in every year since that number has climbed, it is at 60% and still climbing. William Kremer of the BBC News says this, Over the past four decades, there has been a dramatic rise in the number of students who describe themselves as being above average. For academic ability, drive to achieve mathematic ability and self-confidence. There's a catchphrase that people use all the time and it's become so a part of our language that I think that some people don't even recognize that they're using it. You ever speak to somebody and, and be talking to somebody and everything they say back to you is, I know, I know. They, they come and ask you a question and you know they don't know anything about the answer you're giving. And everything they say is, I know, I know, I know, I know. I want to say, then why did you ask? I know that people say, well, it's just an idiom in our language. It's just a thing that people do to keep the, to keep the conversation going. Listen, if you ask me a question and you don't keep saying I know, I'll still talk. It doesn't need, I don't need you to tell me I know to keep the conversation going. In fact, what's going to happen is it's going to stop the conversation. People say it's no big deal. Jesus thought it was a big deal because he said in Matthew 12 and verse 34, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. I know, I know, I know. You know, I can't imagine 
a conversation where David opens up his mouth and he says to the Lord, I teach me. And the Lord says, okay, I'm going to teach you. And then David goes, but Lord, I know, I know, I know, I know. It seems to me that we're prone to cling to this idea that we know everything and need nothing. That we have it all figured out. We've got it all tied down and and we've got it all together. And nobody ever wants to get to that place where they say, Lord, I'm poor and needy because it's a lot easier to go around telling everybody, I'm fine, I got it all together, than to say, hey, I'm poor and needy. It's at least easier on the ego. John Hyatt said this in the 1700s. There is no point on which the world is more dark than that of its own ignorance. We might truly say it is ignorant of ignorance. He went on and he said, they cannot bear to be brought into the contact. The world cannot be brought into the contact of God in anything but a general way. The particulars of his character may not agree over well with the particulars of their lives. The fact is, very often in spiritual matters, people keep saying, I know, I know, I know, so that you'll just shut up. Because they don't want to know. And and, an honest assessment of self in the light of who God is, when you and I look at God in the scriptures and we see him in his majesty and his glory and his holiness and we look at him kind of the way that Isaiah did when Isaiah was found before the throne of God and Isaiah threw himself and he said, oh man, I am a man of unclean lips. David said, I am poor and needy. Lord, teach me. Just one verse earlier in our text, David made an important statement that tied all of this together because he said this in verse 10 about God. Thou art great and doest wondrous things. Thou art God alone. If you're ever going to get to that place where you have this submitted spirit and submitted will that David had, you're going to have to recognize something. Only God is great. Only God does great things. And only God is God. Now, if you can get to the place where you have this honest assessment, it will lead you to the next step. And the next step is a humble attitude. And they're not the same. Do not confuse them for the same. Uh, True humility comes from a right or proper estimation of self. True humility, biblical humility, is not looking down upon yourself just to look down upon yourself. It is a right estimation of yourself in comparison, by the way, not to your Christian brother, not to your Christian sister, not to a pastor, evangelist, or a missionary, but to Jesus Christ. And when you compare yourself to Jesus Christ... Well, you'll see yourself poor and needy. That will lead you to a a humble attitude. The two go hand in hand. No one is truly humble who does not rightly assess himself. But be careful. A right assessment of self does not necessarily make one truly humble. Because many know in private that they're poor and needy. Many have a firm grasp of who they are in their heart, and, and, and they, yet they'll lack in their hearts a, a humble spirit. 
They'll lack that place where they'll come to the Lord and, and say, Lord, teach me. What I'm saying is you and I should never confuse somebody's low self-esteem or low opinion of themselves for an attitude of humility. They're not the same thing. There are many who struggle with low self-esteem, who have a low opinion of themselves but are very proud. There are many who know in their hearts that they're poor and needy, but in their pride they declare, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. Even if the words never form on their lips, the attitude of their heart is displayed in their daily actions as they resist the, this, this call for you and I to submit and to sacrifice ourselves completely and wholly unto God. Every time you and I reject the clear preaching and teaching and the doctrine of the Word of God, what we're declaring is, yeah, God, I know, but... Yeah, God, that's good. I'm glad you said it, but... Yeah, God, this can be your classroom. We'll even name the classroom after you. We'll call it your church, but God, we're going to be in charge. Every time we, we buck against the wooing and the convicting power of the Holy Spirit of God, whether it's in our daily devotions or under preaching or teaching of the Word of God, what we show is, oh, in my heart I might think I'm poor and needy. But I never cry to God and say, Lord, teach me your way. Every time we skip a daily devotion, every time we don't spend time with God in the, in the word daily or in time with him in prayer daily, what we're really saying is, I've got this figured out. I don't need God every day. You say, I don't have time to read my Bible every day. Then you're busier than God ever intended you to be. Yeah, I don't have time to pray every day. Then you're busier than God ever intended you to be. What we're really saying is, I don't have to pray, I don't have to read, because I can get through this day on my own. Oh, I might be poor and needy, and I know that, but I'll get through just the same. What we're really saying is, I don't have a humble attitude. Because a humble attitude always brings you to a point of correction. An honest assessment is just knowledge. A, a humble attitude brings you to a point of action. Humility in the Bible always brings people to a place of action. Search the scriptures. It might be serving others. It might be supplicating for others. It might be seeking the guidance and direction of Almighty God. But consistently through the Bible, those who are marked with a humble attitude are also moved to a point of action. Let me give you a few examples. In 2 Kings chapter number 22, the law of the Lord had been cast away and ignored for many years by Israel. And King Josiah comes along and he's reigning now. In fact, for the first 18 years of his reign, the Bible is literally nowhere to be found. It is then found and it is brought to Josiah and Josiah has the word read to him. And when the king hears the word of God in his ears, he makes an honest assessment of his country and of himself and he recognizes something. We're in a lot of trouble. Can I paraphrase? We're poor and needy. But then something happens. In 2 Kings chapter 22 and verse 11, 
The Bible says, after Josiah made this honest assessment, he rent his clothes. That was an outward picture of what was happening in his heart. It's a picture of a contrite spirit and a broken heart, which God will always accept, Psalm 51. Josiah then instructs the priest this way in 2 Kings 22 and verse 13. Go ye inquire of the Lord for me and of the people and for uh, all of Judah concerning the words of this book that is found. For great wrath is uh, of the Lord that is kindled against us because our fathers have not hearkened unto the words of this book to do according to all that is written in, 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 uh, concerning us. Josiah said to the priest, can I say it this way? Go tell God, teach us. Because we're in a lot of trouble. And the response of God is so important. In 2 Kings 22, verse 19, and verse number 20, because thine heart was tender and thou humbled thyself before the Lord. When thou heardest what I spake against this place and against the inhabitants thereof, that they should become a desolation and a curse and has rent thy clothes and has wept before me, I also have heard thee, saith the Lord. Behold, I, therefore I will gather thee unto thy fathers and thou shalt be gathered into thy grave in peace and thine eyes shall not see all the evil which I will bring upon this place. And, I, uh, and, and they brought the king word again. You know, the, the prophet Micah says to you and I what it means to have a humble attitude. In Micah 6, in verse number 8, he, has showed him, he hath showed thee, O man, what is good. And what, the, and what doth the Lord require but to do justly and love mercy and to walk humbly before thy God. Jesus had a humble attitude. So humble was our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ that he washed the feet of his disciples and his followers. Just recently in our church in, in, in Arizona, we were kind of making light. We had a, uh, just this past Sunday night, we, we, we did something a little different that we did at the start of the church. And we had a ask the pastor night where I didn't come and preach, but anybody in the church could just ask a question. And by God's grace and with his help from his word, we just try to answer from the word of God. And we had a, a question about uh, the, the, the idea of foot washing and why don't we do that today? And, and I said, well, aren't you glad that we don't? I mean, you know, especially in Arizona where it's 120 degrees. Hey, your feet get hot. I won't eat, we probably got to eat supper tonight so we won't talk anymore about people's feet. But Jesus washed the feet of his disciples. Now, the answer why we don't do that any longer is because Jesus did not set that as an ordinance. Jesus told us very plainly what he was doing. You see, when he, when he set the ordinance of baptism, he said, baptize. When he set the ordinance of the Lord's Supper, he said, do this in remembrance of me. But when he washed the feet of the, of the disciples, here's what he said. I've given you an example that ye should do as I have done. Please note the words do and done. A humble attitude moves us to a point of action. Listen, truth of the matter is, I don't want to wash your feet. I'm just being honest. Truth of the matter is, what would be even more humbling, and I'm being tr completely honest, is to have somebody else wash my feet. I don't want to do either, but I ought to at least be humble enough to be willing.
That's what Jesus was saying. You ought to at least be humble enough to be willing. Let this mind be in you, which was in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took him upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. God in the flesh made like you and I. That's humility. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death and even the death of the cross. A humble attitude drove Jesus Christ to the point of obedience and subjection to the plan of the Father. That's what it ought to do in a Christian life. If you and I truly have a humble attitude, we'll find ourselves submissive to the plan of the Father, to the will of the Father. You see, an honest assessment is just knowledge that you and I possess, but a humble attitude is something that possesses you and I. You see it in the matter of salvation. There are people who, who recognize themselves as sinners, but they'll not humble themselves and receive Jesus as Savior. We see it in, we see it in Christian lives as well. We see it in people who, who say, you know, I, I know what God says in His Word, but I think I'm just going to do this anyway. I know God tells me to do this, but I'm just going to go ahead and do this, even though I, I know it contrary to the Word of God, but God will have to understand. Better check your theology. The sad fact is, when you and I when you and I only have an honest assessment and never take the next step to that humble attitude, what happens is pride begins to seep back in because we are naturally prideful. And it's easy for pride to come back in. And we have to guard against it so diligently. You know, there's a grave, grave warning in the book of James against pride and a prideful attitude. In James 4, and verse number 6, the Bible says this, but, but he, God, giveth more grace. Wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, but he giveth grace unto the humble. 1 Peter 5, and verse number 5 says this, Likewise, ye younger, submit yourselves unto the elder. Yea, all of you be subject one to another, and be clothed with humility. For God resisteth the proud, and giveth grace to the humble. If you mark your Bible, you might mark that phrase, God resisteth the proud sometime. The word resisteth speaks of a military action. God says, I'm going to war with the prideful. It's a military action. It means to set the army in array for battle. It means to arrange the battle to stand firm against. In other words, God doesn't say, I just have an attitude that says I'm going to put the, the prideful off for a time. God says, I'm going to war with them. I'm putting the battle in array against the prideful. When God resists the proud, he is actually setting a battle in array against the proud. When God says he's going to do a thing, you mark it down, he's going to do a thing. God actively resists and stands firmly against the proud. 
Oftentimes we make a mess of our lives and eventually we come to ourselves like the prodigal son, but in our pride, we, we still don't humble ourselves and we don't return to the Lord and cry, Lord, I was, I was wrong and I'm not worthy to even be called your child. I've sinned against thee and I'm self-willed and God, forgive me, God, now please teach me your way. In our pride, we try to fix our mess and we try to make things right and things just keep getting worse and it's inevitable that eventually we utter something like this. Man, Satan just won't leave me alone. Please be careful never to give Satan credit for what pride has done to destroy a life. Satan is not God in God's employ. When God resists the proud, he doesn't need Satan to stand firm against them. Years ago, years ago, we had a man in the church in Arizona and he was allowing in his home the most heinous sin to take place. He was well aware of the sin. It had been addressed on multiple occasions. I spoke with him. And I, and I said to him, I said, you're going to have to straighten this out. and You're going to have to deal with this thing. Because if you don't deal with this thing, you have put me in a place where I am going to have to because it is a publicly known sin and it is known throughout the church. And you've put me in a place where I have no other choice, but we're going to have to bring it to the church. The very last words that man ever spoke to me were these. I don't care what you do. This is my house. When he said those words to me, I will tell you the truth. I was both frightened and stunned all at the same time. There was no honest assessment of his sin. There was no humble attitude. There was obstinacy. There was arrogance. There was pride. And, and I know the Bible says that God's going to start a war with that. Within one week of making that statement to me, that man died in his sleep. He was 34 years old. Be careful. I'm nobody. It wasn't what he said to me. It was his attitude toward God. I don't know why God took the man home, but I, I don't believe in coincidences. And I believe when God says he's going to do a thing, he's going to do a thing. And sometimes it's better for God just to take somebody to heaven than to let them keep tarnishing the testimony of Jesus Christ. I know this. You can only mock God for so long before there's a payday. But be encouraged. There's a way out. It doesn't have to be this way. You've made a mess of your life. You're tonight thinking, yeah, I've been doing it my own way and, and I don't really know what to do. Peter said, put on the clothes of humility. It means to be controlled with a humble attitude or spirit. Place yourself in subjection to Almighty God. James says in verse four, or chapter four, verse six and seven, God resisteth the proud, but he giveth grace to the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Be encouraged. If you've been blaming the devil for what pride has done in your, in your life and you've had enough of it, take God at his word. God gives grace to the humble. God always is gracious to those who seek his grace. God's never short on his grace. He doesn't run out of grace. 
It's never too late as long as you're drawing breath to, to have this submitted spirit and say, you know what, I've made an honest assessment. I'm going to take the next step and I'm going to have a humble attitude and I'm going to let God know I've messed up. If I'm faithful, if, I, if I'll confess my sins, he is faithful and he is just to forgive me those sins. And he does give grace to the humble. And when you do that, when you do that, there's one third thing I want you to see. To have this submitted will, we have to have an honest assessment. David had it. I am poor and needy. Does anybody in this room think that somehow they are more spiritual than David was? I have a humble attitude. God, teach me. And that led to a third point in this verse. I see a holy ambition. Teach me. If you mark your Bible, you might mark the word teach in Psalm 86 and verse number 11. It's a very interesting Hebrew word. It's a rather unusual word in one sense for the word teach, but not really when you get a hold of what David is doing and saying. If you study this word out, if you take a look at the underlying Hebrew word, you'll find something very interesting. You see, often when we get to the point where we're ready to finally say to somebody, teach me, what we're really saying is, Give me some advice, and then I'll decide whether I take it or not. Preacher, I, 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 know, I know that if you could have a nickel, because if I could have a nickel, and you've been at this way longer than I, if you could have a nickel for everybody who said to me, Pastor, I need your advice, and you give them, just open the Bible and give them a Bible verse, and they say to you, I'll think about that. I'll consider that. What people, are, when they come to us, they say, a preacher, or, or they come to a brother and sister in Christ, teach me, help me, and then they really are saying, I'll mull it over. I'll consider it. That's one thing when you do it to the preacher. It's one thing to when you do it to a brother and sister of the Lord, but when you do it to God, God, teach me. I'll consider it, God. Too often, we make an honest assessment. We even come with a humble attitude, but somewhere the humility wears off and, and we just say to God, give me some advice. When David said, God, teach me, he left no room for that. No room at all. This word teach in Psalm 86 and verse number 11, more often than not, when it is translated in your Bible, is translated as the shooting of an arrow or the casting of a stone. Lord, teach me. Shoot me like an arrow. Cast me like a stone. A holy ambition. Not God, give me some advice and I'll think it over. God, teach me. Draw me like a, a, an arrow out of your quiver. And Lord, with your perfect aim, you shoot me where you want me. God, like one of those smooth stones that David picked up to put in his sling when he went to go face Goliath, God, you throw me where you want me. And David is coming 
with a completely submitted will that says, God, I've made an honest assessment and God, I've got a humble attitude. And so, Lord, I've got a holy ambition. Not, Lord, I want some advice, but God, I want you to put me right where you want me to be. God, I want you to take aim with my life and place me right where you want me to be. How many are ready to say that? But I'm telling you, unless you're ready to say that, you do not have a submitted spirit. You might think you do, but you don't. Until you can get to that place where you say, Lord, I'm sick of making a mess of my life and I'm sick, of, I'm sick of trying to do it all my way and I'm sick of doing everything like I know it all. Not my way anymore, God. Your way. Let my life be so submitted, God, that I could be a, a bow in your arrow and you could shoot me where you want me. I could be a stone you pick up and you can place me where you want me to be. Not a mixture of my way and your way, God. Your way. Hey, when the archer takes the arrow out of the quiver and he draws back the bowstring, guess how much say the arrow has about where it's going to be shot? None. When, when, the, when the David picked up the stone and slung it at Goliath, the stone couldn't say, hey, I don't want to hit Goliath. Not part my way, not even ivory pure, 99 and four tenths percent your way, God, and just a little bit of mine. God, teach me your way. You put me where you want me. You shoot me where you need me. Teach me. There's no more holy ambition in all the world than to be so totally submitted to the will of God. Do you get to that point and you say, God, whatever you want, wherever you want, whenever you want. Because the arrow doesn't get to say when it gets shot, where it gets shot, how it gets shot. God, your way. Whenever, wherever, whatever. Like an arrow. Put me in your bow, God. You shoot me. You're sitting here and you're saying, well, what if God aims somewhere I don't want to go? What if God's aim is something I'm not pleased with? Let me just give you this and I'm finished. If you had to come to your preacher or your pastor and say, preacher, shoot me where you'd have me to go, you'd have cause, at least if it were me, you'd have cause for concern. When I was a young boy, I had a bow and arrow. And I was wont to take that thing and I would just shoot it in my backyard and I would just draw the bowstring back and point it in the air and shoot it right up into the air. That worked really great until the guy in the house about 200 yards behind us came walking up one day with an arrow in his hand. Seems this arrow fell out of the sky and pierced his convertible. I didn't know if I knew anything about it. Man, never saw that arrow in my life. Not even sure if I've got a bow and arrow. I think the kid down the street does, though. But you're not asking me. You're not asking your pastor. 
Now you can come to your pastor for good and godly advice, and I can tell you from personal experience in my own life, he'll give you good and godly advice. He's done that for me numbers of times. He can do that for you, and God can use him in that way. But what I'm asking you to do tonight is get to the place where you say to God, God, you shoot me where you want me. And can I remind you something? Paul tells us exactly what God will do when we get to that point. But now hath God set the members, every one of them, in the body as it pleased him. The problem is we want it to please us. But remember, this is his class. This is his church. He's going to run this show. He's in charge. David says, if you're going to have a submitted will, you got to get to that place where you have an honest assessment and you have a humble attitude, but you have a holy ambition. And Paul says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Everything else is unreasonable. My question to you is this. Do you have a spirit like David's? Tonight as you sit in God's classroom, his church, his word, I'm nobody. I'm just, I'm just the delivery boy, but this ain't the New York Times. Are you willing to say to God, anywhere, anything, anytime, wherever you want, God, anywhere, anything, anytime. Father, we come to you tonight and we, we thank you for your love and goodness to us. And Lord, you proved your love to us in a way that is so amazing, we can't really wrap our minds around it. You sent your son to die in our place. And Lord, you gave us your son that we might have eternal life. The very least we could do is give back our life now as a living sacrifice. Come to you as a submitted spirit and say, Lord, anywhere, anytime, any place. It won't happen without an honest assessment. It won't happen without a humble attitude. And it won't happen without a holy ambition. Give us that this evening. Have your will and way as pastor closes this invitation. As, as God, the Holy Spirit, leads him to do that. We pray in Jesus' name.